0: But um, well, uh, give, give Todd a welcome. appreciate him coming out tonight. Uh, I'm <laughs> um, pretty certain if I only had one opportunity to um, point people to one passage of scripture to help them clearly understand the gospel. I'm pretty certain it would be these 18 verses that we're going to look at tonight in Luke chapter 10.
1: And I know that may sound
0: surprising to some that would say, well, what about John 3 or somewhere in Romans? It really helped them kind of understand. Uh, but I don't think anything really points to a more clear picture of what Christ has done on our behalf and wants to do through us. Uh, and it's, and it's, he even uh, sums it up in this encounter uh, and in this exchange that he has uh, with a certain lawyer And then later, a story that's probably very familiar to you, and it's called the Parable of the Good Samaritan. And so, uh, let me be kind of upfront and tell you that um, if I had it my way, I'd probably divide it. This is going to be a whole lot to really unpack um, in just a short amount of time that we have tonight, but I want to try to do my best and be um, here to do that. So, here we go. Let's look at the text, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 5. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this is interesting that lawyer, and I'm sorry, we'll stop quite a bit as we move through this, but it's interesting that lawyer stood up, which is definitely a sign of respect that he was honoring Jesus as the teacher or uh, the rabbi, and he asked him a question, and it's intriguing, because Jesus typically does this, Um, He responds with a question in return, and now I'm a parent, I've got three boys, and one of the things I hated that my parents did to me when I was growing up, is when I asked a question, they would ask me a question back. Any of your parents answer you that way? Yeah, it's great. Um, The good thing is, maybe you'll become a parent one day and you can just pass it along. It's called revenge. It's great. And so, um, you know, when my big boy, Brock, he goes, well, what what should I do? What do you think you should do?
1: You yeah, know, that's not what
0: anyone's looking for. And so for Jesus to kind of turn this on a lawyer who's asking him a question about the law and saying, well, what do you think about the law? It isn't necessarily a slap in the face, per se, um, but he's asking him what he's an expert in. And so listen to what the lawyer answered. It said, he answered, you shall love the Lord um, your God. This is how Jesus responded to him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, well, Jesus is speaking of two different types of life here. One of the most obvious is eternal life. This is one that's easily understood uh, by us at this point, understanding what Christ did uh, for us on the cross, but probably not quite as easily understood uh, by this lawyer at this point since that had not taken place yet. Um and that's kind of the question he was asking, but the other is this life that you will live while you are still here on this earth, while your time uh, remains. And Jesus' response is that there should be sanctification, As our big theological word of the day, there should be continued growth taking place in your life while you are here on earth. There should be nothing stagnant about entering into a relationship with someone who is life, with someone who is living water. And so he says there should be continual growth or pursuit taking place while you are here on this life. And he says this growth takes place, first of all, in our heart. Uh, heart, as we know it, the center of our emotions. This reflects our passions. This reflects our priorities. This reflects our values. So the love for God, this growth towards God, should be, first of all, taking place in our heart. Uh, But then he goes on to say this love should be taking place in our mind. Uh, I would say this is probably most often where the battle is won or lost. Uh, Definitely the most difficult as I look at my life. Um, it seems easy to kind of sometimes manage external actions, it uh, becomes very difficult for me to get my arms around my mind and manage my thought life and help my mind continually um, as we're encouraging scripture to think on the Lord, think thoughts of Him. Uh, and so how do we keep our minds focused on Christ, on Jesus, on loving the Lord our God in this world of mind-numbing entertainment? where we are constantly bombarded with noise and information and entertainment, where we can't sit still for a moment and even be still before him. How do we gain control of loving God uh, with our mind? Our minds are always engaged, I realize, especially as a student. uh, Your mind has to be engaged, at least to some degree, in order to pass your class. Um, Or it's either distracted if it's not engaged. But we're told to love the Lord here uh, with all of our minds. So there has to be, at some point, uh, where we're exercising our mind to godliness. Where we're exercising our mind to the things of God. There's got to be a point in my life where I turn the TV off, where, heaven forbid, I actually shut down Facebook for just a little bit, you know, and it's okay if I'm not available all the time. There's got to be space where I can focus and engage my mind to follow my heart, my passions, my values, but to engage in the things uh, of God. And I would say this has to go well beyond uh, a simple five-minute devotion in the morning. Uh, This idea which we don't even really find of devotions or or quiet times, so to speak, when we're encouraged to be constantly in prayer, where we're encouraged to constantly give our minds to the things of God, but somehow we do feel pretty good about checking that box off. Like, oh yeah, well, I I did that. I engaged for five minutes this morning uh, with my mind, with scripture, in prayer. Uh, There's got to be a growth towards your biblical and theological understanding. And I would say the best way to do this is to learn to fall in love through your mind with the scriptures. It's great to come here. I love to speak. I love to preach. I love to encourage other people in the word. I know Dave does as well, but that can't be the extent of your understanding. That can't be the extent of how we grow. We have an eight-month-old at home, and he's just learning to self seat, which is really funny. Um, He's figured out how to get almost everything to his mouth. And at this point, he eats literally everything. In fact, my other boys are like pawning stuff off on him that they don't want to eat because whatever he can pick up, he puts in his mouth. That's a big change, okay? Because it used to be me, you know, doing a little air, open up, please, you know, don't spit this back on me as I'm shoving stuff in there. Now he's mobile and can move and grab and shove things. That should be a natural progression. It would be very odd if he was a college student and I was still showing up to feed him, right? Okay, But yet, when we look at our lives spiritually, that's us. That's us. We sit and we wait, please. And I'm all about sermons and podcasts and ways to engage reading books. But you've got to fall in love with his word. And you've got to spend time uh, understanding it. Uh, To obey Jesus means we can't be a Christian uh, for ten years and still be a baby in our understanding of the word. There's got to be something wrong with that. So we love Him with our heart. We love Him with our mind. uh, We love Him with our soul and with our strength. To love the Lord with our strength, what does that mean? There's a great picture of intensity here, of actually pressing into the things uh, of God. Being a Christian isn't a label. It's not part-time. It's not something that's convenient. It's all-consuming. and It requires all of your strength. It is your life. And so Jesus says, this is what it should look like. If you want to understand the gospel, if you want to understand what I've done for you, I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it. It's just as important, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. This seems easy to understand, so we would think especially for a lawyer to understand that you would love your neighbor, but he doesn't. And so he responds, here we go, uh, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Those of us that have grown up in a faith, we tend to do the same thing. Sometimes we don't know that we do this, but uh, we tend to live our lives in such a way that we never look at the root issues in our heart. We become very good at external behavior modification, all right? I can live the right way. I can do the right things because I know what it looks like to be a Christian. And so I've got this loving my neighbor thing figured out because it is external. Uh, but we do that so that we can look good and justify ourselves before other people or even justify ourselves before the Lord. So the lawyer says who is my neighbor? Because he thinks Jesus' response is going to be, well, it's your family, it's your friends, it's the other Israelites, the the other Jews, the people that are are like you, those are your neighbors. But if that were true, he he would simply be able to say, that is awesome, because I already love God, and, and I love people that are like me. This is perfect, I've got all this figured out, and so now I'm in uh, great shape. Not only do I love the Lord with all my soul, heart, mind, and strength, but I love my neighbor uh, too. And so the crowd is supposed to go, wow, this guy's good. This guy's got it all figured out, and that's what he wants. He wants to justify himself like we do by uh, external recognition. So Jesus kind of blows this guy's thinking up in true fashion by telling a story. And Jesus replied, he said this, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, you have to understand that this is more than a story. This is an actual road. Uh, It's uh, from a little bit of help here and research. It's about 17 miles long, and the road literally dropped about 3,000 feet along that 17-mile stretch. And so when he says this man was literally going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it really does go down. And so he's on this road, which, by the way, wasn't necessarily a great road to be on, uh, kind of a shady uh, road, if you will, or shady things happen on this road, and that's exactly what's going happened here. It says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers to stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now the way that this man would have been identified would have been very difficult because the way we identify people, the way we see if people is one of us, are one of us, is, is this person my neighbor, if you like me, is by clothing and by dialect. You look around in here and the majority of you kind of look the same, you act the same, you talk the same. Why? It just happens the more time that you spend with each other. It's kind of a natural thing. There's a co- I can recognize college students. by The way they dress, act, and the fact they have no money, you know, or the way they speak. There's kind of something going on. I can tell the difference between you guys and my middle schoolers, and it's not just by size or weird bodily noises, okay? <laughs> Although some of those cross across both, I know, groups of people, but still. Um, there is a distinction that happens, and that's typically how we identify. We dress the same. We eventually talk the same. And so that's how we've identified our neighbors. But this guy's naked and unconscious, which means we won't be able to identify him. And so let's keep going. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I think most of us read this, and and our initial reaction is to be very hard on the priest. Uh, I know in my understanding, until pouring into this a little bit, uh, for the majority of my life, I was very hard on the priest. Why in the world? Here this man is, someone in the ministry. But then I kind of got a better picture of what was going on with the priest. Uh, The priest is definitely upper class when it came to social status, when it came to economic uh, status. So he isn't walking by, he's riding by in some form or fashion. Um, And and uh, passing by wasn't simply because he didn't want to minister outside of his class necessarily. Now, the priest is on his way back, as it would turn out, from a time of two-week ministry uh, there in the temple. And so what would happen is if this guy, the priest, were actually to get close to this guy that was beaten up, that was naked, um, he would be ritualistically and ceremonially unclean. And so according to the religious law that he worked under, he literally, by nature of the law, couldn't get close to him. And a lot of times I didn't know that and didn't take that under consideration, but uh, if he got within actually six feet, as we would understand it, uh, of this skin he would be considered ritualistically uh, unclean as a priest and would have to go back to the very temple um, that he came from uh, and begin the rites of purification which require him to go out and buy a red coal or a red heifer and go and turn it into uh, ash by burning it. It takes at least seven days. Then he has to stand at the eastern gate uh, with all of the other people that needed purification and forgiveness and sin against God. And then stand before a priest, much like himself, uh, who would have purified him. So he would have been filled with shame, would have been filled with guilt, would have been out a lot of money for having to make a sacrifice, uh, unable to take the tithes and offering and uh, food, which means not only will he suffer, but his family will actually suffer uh, if he helps this man. And so just to kind of write off the priest and kind of not give him a fair deal in all of this, he's really in a tough predicament. And I would hope, giving him the benefit of the doubt, uh, that since he especially didn't know the social class and the distinction between this man, maybe something inside him really wrestled with this. Really said, I, maybe I should stop. Maybe I should uh, do something. So I would encourage us not to judge the priest too harshly. And so basically the priest sees him and goes along the side of him uh, and will help. And so let's look at the next person to come along. Uh, so likewise, the Bible says, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass on the other side, uh, a Levite was uh, also in the priestly class, but he was kind of like a JV priest, right? he, he wasn't on the varsity squad, and more than likely, he would never get bumped up to varsity. The Levites were guys that assisted the priests in the temples, so they were kind of like right-hand men, uh, if you will, and... Um, this guy was in no way economically near what the priests were. He was not in the same class as the priest, uh, socially or economically. Uh, so the Levite probably would have been a much more humble person in regards to what he made and the lifestyle that he lived. Uh, and so this Levite would have absolutely been walking. He would not have been riding. Uh, and so the thing about being on a road that stretches out for 17 miles and goes down, he would have had plenty of time to see this guy from a distance, maybe three miles out or something, I don't know, to be able to be up high and see someone that was beaten up uh, and laying down on the road. And so here's a Levite who serves the priest, who doesn't make a lot of money, who's all by himself, passes by this man, he's bound by the same ritualistic law and would have the same things applied to him and he saw possibly the priest pass by and he probably thought to himself, well listen, if the priest didn't do uh, anything about it and if you wouldn't touch him, I most certainly shouldn't. Besides, where am I going to be able to get the money to help this guy? What means do I have to serve uh, him? I don't roll like the priest does, alright? I don't have the kind of money he does. And so the Levite, we're told, rushes by as well. And now this next part is where this story, as Jesus would have told it, uh, would have turned absolutely scandalous. Uh, It goes on to say, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now it's really important that you understand what's going on culturally here. Uh, The Samaritans were half breeds They were half-Jews and half Samarians. and when Israel was in captivity, what happened is men and women uh, they married their captors, and then they had children. And so you had Israel under captivity under the Samaritans, and some of them married outside of their class, and so their children were these half-breeds, these Samaritans. Uh, And in this century, Jews believed that if you had anything to do with a Samaritan. It it basically was even in their law that if you ate the bread of a Samaritan, it was equal to eating pig meat or eating pork, which we know was definitely against their dietary restrictions. Uh, There were actually prayers that were uttered and prayed in the synagogue during this time uh, that people asked God not to give grace or forgiveness to the Samaritans. So understand, this is more than just we don't like them. (laughs) This is a lot bigger than this. This is a pretty strong level of hatred. And so you can see there's not a lot of love between these two uh, ethnic groups. Now, the Samaritan, he's not a Gentile. He he would, likewise, because he was half-Jewish, be still bound to the ritualistic laws that the priests and the Levite were bound to, that all the Jews were bound to. But yet, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. It says in Scripture, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two and and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, what you need to understand is that the Samaritan put himself at great risk here uh, by helping because if things would have taken place um, during this time, uh, if someone was beat up, if someone were injured, uh, if you moved in, you became like a companion to them. You became a compatriot to them, and so you became kind of a part of their party, and, and so if these people, the robbers, were still out there or whatever, you became an easy target as well because you were now in uh, that circle. I know that doesn't make sense to us, but he could have been attacked by uh, association, but he doesn't hide from this risk. It says that he goes and he steps in, he helps him, he puts him on his animal, he takes him to the inn, checks him in, lets his face be seen, stays the night, takes care of his wounds, and, and he says, listen, if this guy wakes up the next day, he says this is the innkeeper and he can't pay uh, for his bill, let me go ahead and give you more uh, money. If I'm not back in time, don't have him arrested. I'll be back, I promise, I'm good for it. Here's the money and I'll pay you whatever else I need when I get back. And so now look at what Jesus is going to do here. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so what's intriguing to me is it's not just that we learn from this story. It's not just that we have a picture of the gospel from this story and how we are to live. But it's it's actually that we are commanded to live out the gospel in this way from this story. Uh, It's not even a suggestion. The command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means there should be a seriousness about our walk with Christ. Jesus isn't a hobby. Christianity isn't a hobby. It's not, okay, uh, I'll just do this when it's convenient for me, or I'll live this way. Listen, Jesus is a pursuit, and he is a continual pursuit. And then we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other passages of the gospel, it says uh, this, this commandment here, to love God and to love others, sums up everything in the Old Testament law and prophets. If, if you want a nutshell of God's story uh, from the beginning of creation, it's love him and love other people. And that's why I think this is an amazing picture uh, of the gospel. And so he says, to love others as yourself. Well, who are our neighbors if we're going to ask the same question? Let's say anyone in need of compassion, anyone in need of mercy, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of socioeconomic status, anyone that is in need of compassion and mercy, and we're commanded, not suggested, commanded by Jesus himself that you are to go and to do likewise. There's a lot of weight in this story. And I know that this concept may sound simple to you, especially if you've grown uh, up in your faith and you've heard this story before. You know this commandment to love God and to love others. But listen, I promise you, living this out is incredibly difficult. Not just when it's convenient. Living this out daily Because do you see what happened here? A priest had legitimate reasons not for engaging someone who deserved compassion and mercy. If he did, he was going to be affected by that. He was going to be looked at a certain way. If he touched him, there could be trouble for his family uh, or there could be loss of status for himself or even for his countrymen. The Levite's going, well, I don't have enough money to help and the priest didn't do it, so uh, I probably shouldn't do it. Those seem like legitimate reasons not to do this. and, And I guarantee you we could come up likewise with some... I don't know if you guys have worked through the earlier um, passage in Luke chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 57, where um, some of Jesus' followers, not his disciples, but Jesus traveled with lots of followers, said, well, you know, we want to serve you, we want to be your disciple, we want to go with you, and then they start rattling off excuses. And Jesus goes, Listen, and the excuse just sounds great to us. Hey, let me go bury my dead father. Or, hey, let me go say goodbye to my family. Uh, let me go take care of some things first. And Jesus goes, Don't bother. You know, you fit. And you're like, What? <laughs> How's that even possible? Well, how, how then can we even do this? How, who, who in the world could possibly uh, serve him in this way? Who, who could be the good Samaritan here? But he says, love me with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I would challenge you to do tonight, we we all lean one direction or the other. Because I think there's kind of two sides here. Uh, On one side, uh, we kind of can lean too far, almost at the expense of the other. So if you're in here and you're kind of a more heady, kind of theological uh, type, that you tend to drive by someone who's homeless and go, you know what? We really ought to do something uh, about that. But you never do anything. Right, you 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 have knowledge, and right, and you love doctrine, and and you love the Word of God, but but we go to to the extreme where we do it at the expense of action, uh, or uh, the other side tends to kind of talk uh, about um, all of the truths that are in Scripture, but then the other side can be so mobilized to action uh, that there's this continual desire to live this out, but there's no kind of foundational pinings, if you will, or a theological truth that undergirds it, like, you know, the the whole, what would Jesus do? We have to have a bracelet to figure this out, and we're just going to go live this way, and live communally, and try to, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but anywhere in Scripture, you've got to be careful of extremes, because there's always tension by living in the balance. And so sometimes you can go to this side uh, and they, and you would talk to this side about the ultimatum that Christ lays out and they would say, well, that's just cold. No, that's harsh. That's kind of dead doctrine, uh, if you will. Uh, but Jesus says, how do you inherit eternal life? Well, it's both. It's by living in the tension of the gospel. And so we have to come to a point where we acknowledge our failures here. Uh, because I think the worst thing that could possibly happen for you and for me is to go and engage with something like this in Scripture and just go, yeah, man, that's good. That's great, man. Those are good words. And just walk out and go go on with life. Or file that away for the to-do-later list, you know? So we have to wrestle with our all of our failures here at trying to live uh, out the Gospels. We've got to confess those. And I look at my own heart. To some degree, I can kind of lead uh, this way to the theological side. I love to get the Word and read the Word and try to really understand what's going on there. And I can almost do that at the expense of forgetting that ministry is people. To just, oh man, if I can just get in and study and read and pour over this. And that's great, but not at the expense of remembering. Uh, I don't err that way too often, but I can be that way. Uh, I tend to err on the other side of continual service and pouring out. I think that's kind of how God uh, has wired me and gifted me, and I love to serve, but I can almost do that at the expense of, well, wait, there's got to be foundations to why we do this. Uh, It isn't just being a humanitarian. I mean, charities do great work, but for what purpose? If the gospel isn't going forth as part of that purpose, can there be true work or help? That is done. Uh, and so there's got to be a tension here as we live this out. Let me give you some practical ways tonight as you think about your personal failures here because we've got to acknowledge them. And that we don't love, first of all, we don't even get kind of the first part right, loving the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we definitely fail uh, on this loving our neighbor as ourselves. So how do we move forward? How do we truly engage the gospel of loving God and loving others? I talk about three T's with our students all the time. You're probably familiar uh, with them. I think it's a good place to start. First thing we see is this guy used his time. Um, This is obvious. He could have been in a hurry. We aren't told if the Samaritan was trying to get from point A to point B quickly at a meeting. to He had things that he had to do, business, but he obviously stopped and gave of his time. This is a huge one for me. I can so over-schedule my life being students, getting meetings, having things to do in ministry that I blow by ministry, and that doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud. I'm so busy doing ministry that I don't have time to do ministry, but it happens to me all the time. And so we're encouraged here to use our time, to give of our time. He took time from his day. There's no doubt that this would be convenient. It's never convenient to help somebody. It never fits into our schedule. And then not only this one momentarily stop and affecting his journey, but he took the days after to continue to care for this man. Uh, Second thing, he gave of his talents. We don't know much about the Samaritan. We don't know if he was a doctor, if he trained in first aid. He had some abilities, and he used them um, to care for this man. We aren't told what his spiritual gifts or his abilities are, but I would bet this man had the gift of mercy and had a passion for helping others. God has gifted you. He's given you abilities and passions, and he wants you to use your talents. And then thirdly, he gave of his treasures. Did you catch that use used his personal items to help the man? He poured his own personal oil on him. He put his own cloth on him. He put the man on his very own donkey, which means he no longer had a mode of transportation, and he walked alongside of him. He gave of his money to get a room for him in the hotel. So we take these three Ts, our time, our talents, and our treasures, uh, and we apply them here. How do we do that? Well, let me give you four actions the Samaritan did in this story uh, so that we can do this in our lives. And the first thing I would challenge you what the Samaritan did, he start by seeing the needs. And likewise, in our own lives, we have to start by simply opening our eyes. Uh, one thing I've prayed a lot in my life is, uh, God, help me see the world the way that you see the world. Help me kind of see the world through the lens of Christ. Help me see the world through the lens of Scripture. And in praying that, you're saying, God, help me take the eyes off of myself. We don't have to work hard to be narcissistic and to be selfish (laughs) and to live life for ourselves. We have to work very hard to notice needs otherwise. And that's exactly what the Samaritan did in verse 33. It says, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and he saw him. We notice needs. We start by being aware. It is not okay for Christians to be blind to the needs of the world around us. It's not okay. If people everywhere are hurting, and they are, spiritually, emotionally, physically, it's not okay for us to ignore those needs. And this is even problematic for us here in the state because we have no real understanding of how the rest of the world lives and how wealthy we are and how many problems are going on worldwide because we're not very global in our understanding uh, of our lives, much less the news, much less the gospel. We have to see the needs no matter how hard it is. So we start with seeing the need. Secondly, um, you see he responded internally with a heart of compassion. We're told there again in that verse 3, three when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Uh, what has taken place in the world? What is going on around us when we open our eyes? When we see people that are in need, when we see people that are hurting, does it break your heart? It breaks the heart of God. When Jesus said he looked out and he saw the crowd, said he he was literally hurting on the inside. He said they look like sheep, they look like they're scattered, they look like they're helpless, like they don't have a shepherd. And we see this. I see this every year. Um, I take our high schoolers down uh, to Nicaragua which is the second poorest country in this hemisphere. And some of the sites that you see uh, are just unbelievable. And I remember the first year driving down into La Trudeca, which is the city dump, the city dump of Managua, where an estimated 1,800 people live, about 800 of those being children, literally working a dump to get whatever they can to salvage, to make a house out of, to sell. Most of them are It's sniffers. It's a horrible, uh, filthy, nasty existence. I drew, I, and we drove through there, uh, and we stopped, and the family, the missionaries that we work with have a ministry there. They have a school inside uh, the dump, and they're trying to rescue these kids and, and work with renutrition nutrition And hell, I, I fell apart. because the God, spirit pressed in on me, and I went, wow. I just had no idea. Literally, you can ask my wife. I came back home, and this was my first date for the nurse. And I was to trip, and I said, I think we need to sell everything we have. Right. <laughs> She's never been yet, and obviously that didn't go over real well, but I had no idea what to do with what I saw and what I processed. All I, need, all I knew was we needed to do something. So why do I have so much? Why wasn't I born there? Love for the grace of God, and so we've got to be moved with a heart of compassion. Listen, if it doesn't affect your heart, if the gospel never penetrates your heart, if it stays here in your head, you will never have compassion. And listen, if you're sitting here as a follower of Christ and and you're going, you know, I don't, my heart doesn't break, then you need to spiritually examine where your heart is and who you belong to. Because there's just no way as the gospel begins to unfold in our lives. Third thing, uh, this Samaritan, he responds externally with a practical effort to help. So not only did he see it move to his heart, then it moved to outward action. This is where a lot of us get stuck. Now you see it changing channels or you're made aware of it through a video that someone sends you every... You know, 100 million causes that appear on Facebook that someone wants you to join. Uh, We can see it, we can be aware, it can even touch our hearts momentarily. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Do we respond externally? Do we move with practical efforts to help? We saw that he bound up his wounds, he poured oil on him, he put him on his own um, transportation, took him to an inn, took care of him. Listen, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what to do. And I know as you think about these three T's, your time, your talents, and your treasures, I, I know you're deficient on the treasures end of things. I was a college student once. <laughs> you have something that most don't have. You have an amazing amount of time, and most of you have amazing talents that God has given you and passions and abilities to use them in a way you'll never be able to be on these four, five, six, seven, I don't know, years that you have here in college. And so it's okay if you're less on one of those areas than the other. It doesn't excuse us. We know what to do. And if it isn't responding financially, we can figure out ways to help. Someone's hungry, I feed them. People need clothes. My gosh, I have so many in my closet. I have plenty to give away. Listen, doing God's work locally and around the world has to be financed. So I give my money, even if it is a little, to help. It's practical. The uh, fourth area is this. He he moves in by breaking down all the barriers. So not only does he see it, not only does it affect him compassionately on the inside, not only does he move externally with practical ways, uh, but he does so at a great risk. It's never easy. It never uh, necessarily fits our schedule. The person in distress, we talked about this, was actually an enemy by race, by nationality, by religion. A half-breed Jew, Stop to help the Jew who actually hates him. And I think the same must absolutely characterize our lives as followers of Christ. We've got to break down the barriers to help the hurting. Serve a different race. Serve a different gender. Care for an atheist. Love an enemy. Touch someone who is dirty. Befriend the lonely or the outcast. And I know there's plenty right here on campus. You don't have to go very far. John Piper says it this way, an eye for distress A heart of pity and effort to help in spite of enmity, in spite of hate, in spite of barriers. That's true mercy. And that's what we're called to. Can we pray together? And just as we pray, let me just give you a few moments before the Lord, as his spirit has moved into your heart and invaded your space tonight, maybe press some things on your mind to think about, to just spend some time in community and communication with him. Jesus, every one of us in here is a lot more like the lawyer, the priest, (laughs) and the Levite in this story than we want to admit. We all have such amazing areas of deficiency when it comes to the gospel, to loving you and to loving others. And it is so simple, and praise God you've made it simple. It is so hard to live this out. And there isn't an ounce of strength in and of ourselves that we can even muster to do this. It will be only by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and only by your amazing grace that we're even able to put one foot in front of the other when it comes to growing in our sanctification, our love for you through our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when it comes to loving neighbors, loving people as much as we love ourselves. I pray tonight, God, that it is very freeing for all of us to simply sit here and go, we can't do this. But in the same breath we want to say, but we can't do this. We can't do this in and of our own strength, but we can do this and are commanded to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray for all of us in here tonight. And that our head wouldn't hit our pillows tonight. That we wouldn't rest easy until we have wrestled through this text. Until we have wrestled with the gospel and its implications for how we live our lives, not every day, every moment of every day. How we use our time, our talents, and our treasures for the kingdom. I thank you for the amazing opportunities you've given these college students, and I pray that they would look at their Time and place and space on this earth right now as a divine mission. A ministry appointment, if you will, that you have given them uh, unlike any other that I don't have anymore, that Dave doesn't have anymore, that they won't have in a few short years. And to look around on this campus and see those that are falling down on the road. Maybe it's not physically. Maybe it's not even emotional. Maybe it's Spiritually, and wandering in wandering and darkness. Now, give us eyes to see. Give us a heart of compassion. Give us practical, external ways to live this out. And please, by your grace, allow us to cross barriers and to be the church. name. <clears throat>